Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now.
101.5 UMFM. This is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Alves and kicking things off for us tonight. Originally known as Chet Faker, then formerly known as Nick Murphy, now known as Chet Faker again. Uh, that is a new single called Get High. It follows the song Low that came out just before Christmas. A uh, couple of new tracks from, from Chet Faker. And now I'm not entirely sure why he changed his name back from Nick Murphy. Uh, his his original name, but uh, regardless, nice to have new music from him. Uh, speaking of new music, we got uh, something for you from Bandcamp Friday, which is today. Uh, don't forget, if you support artists and labels, that uh, Bandcamp is waiving all of their fees today, so all the money goes directly into the artist's coffers. And uh, Sahel Sounds, the uh, great uh, continental African label, has put out a uh, compilation of uh, stuff and so wow wow collective with salam alaikum is a new track that they just dropped today and uh check out their their great page on Bandcamp and and do support some artists today coming up after the wow wow collective we've got an interview with desote faculty of music professor john gordon who has uh, written a book called jazz dialogues and chronicles uh decades of conversations with jazz greats and uh, really, really interesting book. So stick around for that. And then we've got some more new music.
Dieu a créé la terre. La terre a continué toujours de tourner sur lui-même. Mais l'humanité a évolué. L'humanité. Il a vraiment évolué avec le temps des temps, parmi les temps des temps. Et la terre continue à tourner sur elle-même. Pacifiquement, pacifiquement, loyalement. All right, he is a professor in the Desautel Faculty of Music, but he is also the author of a new book called Jazz Dialogues. John Gordon joins me. Welcome, John. Thanks. Good to be with you. So this book, uh, as the title implies, uh, you know, series of conversations, uh, dialogues, and some of them date back like quite a ways. Some of them are, are kind of more reminiscences than than like you know Q and As. But I'm I'm curious in terms of when this went from like a pursuit to a project for you as as these conversations evolved yeah so um a latter part of 2005 well i guess it starts even earlier than that in 2003 i believe it was i was watching uh the grammy awards in new york and um they didn't show the videos i've seen videos some years where they actually show the jazz musicians that win but they showed a picture of Maria Schneider winning the Grammy Award. Maria is a friend, and I was working with her quite a lot in the 90s into the early 2000s. It was, that was around the time that uh, Tower Records also closed. And when Tower Records closed in New York, that was kind of iconic. And I thought, okay, I've got I've to get into and uh, look for this new paradigm. And she had told me prior to that, that a good friend of hers, this guy, Brian Camillo, she said, he's gonna do something that completely changes the scene. I can't tell you what, uh, but trust me, it's going to. And then a couple of years later, I see her win the Grammy. And so Maria was the first person to win a Grammy award for a, a recording of music, you know, CD that was not released in stores. And so that was worldwide news. And I thought I need to contact Brian Camillo at Artishare, who was her, you know, the, the, the label as such. And we planned things out. And when I got involved with it, he said, now look, our whole, our whole thing is we're not just presenting a CD. We want you to present, you know, um, educational series like lessons, which I've done. Mm-hmm. And also just what other content would you want to do? And I thought about it and I thought, you know, I think if I just interview some of my friends and, and my, my heroes and my mentors and my teachers, like I, I'm, I would be into doing that. And I think I'd really be into passing some of that on in the form of those interviews. And, and Brian said, who actually at the time was a quite accomplished uh, guitarist that studied with Jim Hall. And he basically switched to just full-time kind of running this, this company. He said, I think that'd be great. And you know, someday you could actually turn it into a book. And at the time I really didn't think I was gonna do that. Um, but what I did start to think is around 2009 and 10, I started to look at going back to school. 
uh, I, I did eight semesters at Manhattan School of Music, but I had to, uh, I'm giving you a long answer. That's fine. Uh, we got time. I had to, uh, I, I switched majors in the middle of that and my funding ran out. So I had to go back and do some, some uh, uh, academic courses to basically finish that undergrad degree. And that's when I started, you know, writing, wrote the one book. The, the other book uh, for, for Sue was, came through a, a writing course that I was taking at the time that I was encouraged by that teacher. And then simultaneously, I was approached by a guy that runs uh, Colin Music, Charles Colin, or Alan Colin, his, his dad was Charles, asked me to write a book. And that's when I started to think about taking um, the interviews of jazz musicians and well, someday I, maybe I could put this into a book. But before I tried to do that, I, um, in pursuing this academic thing and finishing my undergrad degree, then I went on to master's, a master's program because I knew really to get the kind of teaching job I needed, I would need a master's. And there was a number of programs I was looking at after that of doing a doctoral degree. And I thought, before I try to turn this into a book, let me try to turn it into a doctoral thesis. So for a number of the schools that while they were interested in maybe me doing a doctoral program, they felt that the topic was too broad and they want something very granular and specific like reeds for jazz tenor players in 1967. And I was like, I, cannot <laughs> do, you know, I mean, literally, you know, I, I just can't do it. You get into some deep read conversa conversations in a couple of these, but I can't imagine a whole book of it. Goodness, no. And of course, nobody would want to read it. And I understand it's about the the intellectual rigor of the process and all that, but I, I just had to follow my passion with the book. And so, you know, when, when I kind of felt like that there wasn't an openness to it being a doctoral thesis, that's when I said, all right, I'm going to go ahead and really focus on it as a book. And um, I think that was maybe just in the last few years that I, I, I said, well, let me add some more uh, reminiscences. And, and the, the book starts with, me being stuck in an airport uh, in 1987 when I was 20, coming back from my first major overseas gig and getting a chance to sit and talk with Jay McShann for about an hour, who I'd gotten to play with. Jay McShann is great, was a great uh, Kansas City-based blues pianist that was uh, most well-known for giving Charlie Parker his first big gig. And he introduced me to this idea of what it means to be a jazz stylist. And so that's kind of the... Um, that's the genesis of the book, you know, because I felt, you know, over those years that that's really what it was that I was asking people for what's your journey and, you know, and, and what is it that you're, you know, that informs what you're bringing. And while not asking specifically, are you a jazz stylist and how did you become one? Um, I think that's kind of the thesis behind the, the thesis topic, if you were behind the, the interviews. So if that's your thesis and you're, and you're trying to get to the root of that with each of the people you talk to, but that you don't want to necessarily point blank ask them that question, how do you work that into your conversations or, you know, pick, pick at that so you get what you want out of it? Well, mostly, you know, in some of those short stories, like there'd just be like maybe a lesson I got, you know, some, some some important knowledge that I got from somebody that I respected and admired. But in the actual interviews, it was more like, you know, where do you come from? Talk to me about, you know, like with Eddie Locke was the first interview. Tell, tell me about growing up in Detroit and being around, you know, Thad Jones and Elvin Jones and 
uh, and Roland Hanna and, and Hank Jones and Barry Harris and Tommy Flanagan and, you know, uh, Pepper Adams and Kenny Burrell and Oliver Jackson, you know, all these great musicians. And, and then that just led to, you know, and this is how we grew and this is who taught us and, and these are the things that are important to me. And his thing was, and many of the older musicians of, you know, kind of pointed this out as something that Jay McShann said, something that A. Locke said. It's like, you know, a lot of people are playing their instruments in a really impressive way, but what is it that you have to offer? What is it that, you know, what makes, you know, what, what is your recognizable contribution? You know, when you hear Ben Webster play, you know it's him in two notes, if not one. You hear Billie Holiday sing. Um, Elise Regina from a different tradition. You... Uh, Brazilian tradition. You hear Paul Desmond play. It's very recognizable. And so that's kind of what they were saying. It's like, you know, you have to find out what you have to offer. And here's how I, here are the people that, that pointed me in that direction. And, you know, and what's interesting about it is there is not a linear equation of like, hey, if you do A plus B, and then you arrive at C and you're a jazz, you know, like, no, any great art would never be that simplistic, right? Mm -hmm. But I think what, what these artists do, and I think just being around them is really, for me, was the blessing, you know, just, just kind of sitting with them and getting a sense of their energy and intention. And sometimes things that you can't even really necessarily translate in words, but that you try to evoke in the conversations um, because it's that, it's that oral tradition, you know? And that's what Phil Wood said to me. He said, man, you know, Art Blakey and Dizzy Gillespie, they cared about me. They thought I was struggling and they, they wanted me to know they believed in me. And that, you know, and so sometimes it's just somebody spending time with you. You know, it isn't even necessarily all the specifics of what they said, but that they cared and they showed that they believed in you. And then that gives you the belief to say, well, I guess, as Phil Woods used to say to me, I guess I ain't no bomb, you know? And um, so I think, you know, it's a combination of all that. And it's, it's like anything, you know, trying to put it into words is, is, is uh, limited in certain regards. But my hope is in the book through the stories and the interviews, you get a sense of the different lessons that, that these folks, friends, heroes, mentors, and just, you know, musicians I've met along the way, their journey and, and, and everybody's journey is going to be different, right? You know, um, I mean, T.S. Eliot or E.E. E. Cummings or whoever or, or Moliere became who they became in their own journey. Uh, Mahler or Beethoven or Haydn or Bach had their own journey, you know. Um, Charlie Parker and, and Dizzy Gillespie and Monk and John Coltrane and Bill Evans and, you know, Jacques Pastoris and Wynton Marsalis all had their own, their own journey. But I think... The ultimate question is, what is it that you have to offer? And knowing that that's where you want to be headed, I think is half the battle if you, if you have the right guidance along the way and the right intention. It's interesting you mentioned, you know, some, some non-jazz artists there when you, when you were listing folks off, because that seems to be a lesson that more than one artist you talk to in the book reiterates is that you can't just be about jazz, that, you know, you need to understand visual art or have an appreciation for classical music and, and all of these things that kind of seem to help understand art as a like overall concept or as a pursuit or an avocation rather than just like the minutia of like, how do you make a jazz song? 
Well, yeah. And it's, you know, it's not how you make a jazz song so much as how do you become a jazz musician that is responsive to anything happening in the moment. And Charlie Parker, I believe, was, was the person that really imparted this quite a bit in the scene, you know, of, of telling, whether it was telling Phil Woods, telling Sheila Jordan, telling Barry Harris, who was saying this in Detroit, you know, Charles McPherson recounts, you know, sitting at Barry Harris's and, you know, Miles would be there or Train would come if they were coming through town or Sonny Rollins or, or Barry and Pepper Adams would sit and talk about philosophy and great works of art. And, and, and Bird, uh, also known as Charlie Parker, was the one that would, you know, that, that they said, said, you know, if you want to be a great musician, you've got to be a great artist. And so you need to know classical music. You need to know visual art. You go to the museums, learn about the important artists, learn about their important works because you have to contextualize what you're doing, right? When Charlie Parker was playing in a club and Stravinsky would walk in, he'd, he'd quote uh, a famous theme from Petrushka, you know, because that was, that was what he was doing in the moment, reacting to what was, what was happening. Um, and he, in fact, when he passed, was, was hoping to study classical composition with um, a couple of great composers in New York. But I think that's true for any artist, you know? I think that's true. I mean, look at Leonard Bernstein's uh, series of six lectures at Harvard in the 70s, The Unanswered Question, which quotes a piece, the title of a piece by Charles Ives and uses that as the, as the uh, his basic thesis, you know? Um, and he talks about classical music. He talks about poetry. He talks about painting. He talks about, you know, the, the direction of art in, in the 20th century to give these things some kind of context. And so I, I do think that that's true. He's also a great appreciator of, of, of jazz, Bernstein. The like knowledge or understanding of, you know, a wide variety of things seems to kind of come up against also some, maybe not necessarily like negative, but question questions about jazz education. Uh, you know, that, sometimes uh, i mean i can't remember maybe it was ken popowski who talked about you know how many jazz saxophonists are graduating in the world and how many the way they really need and how how many have like their own sound and there's there's a lot of kind of questions and i mean obviously you're an educator and you know you took you you went to school you know went to the manhattan school of music what is the kind of like is it a schism? Is it kind of like a disconnect? What do you view as kind of like formal jazz education and then like this world learning that, that some, sometimes is kind of more effective, if that's correct? Well, what I would say is, I believe it was Phil was saying, you know, there's, you know, 2,000 tenor players a year coming out of Berkeley, but, you know, there's only three gigs or something. And he was joking. And in fact, now in the middle of the pandemic, there are no gigs uh, and there aren't 2000 tenor players a year coming out of Berkeley, but his point is a valid one nonetheless. Um, what are we preparing them for? And the simple fact of the matter is that if you wanna be a musician of any kind, if you wanna be a teacher of any kind, the kind of education that I personally prioritize, I think is going to serve you no matter what you wanna do, you know? Eddie Locke talked about the principal percussionist in the, in the New York Philharmonic coming and taking lessons with him. Now, does he need to be, is he gonna go and play a gig? 
with, with uh, Coleman Hawkins the way that Eddie Locke did? No, he's not. But he's going to be better at what he does uh, as a classical percussionist from doing that. Um, I've had a number of classical students during my time at the, at the U of M who are marvelous players. They're not primarily uh, jazz players, but I can give them information that's going to help them be better classical musicians, be better composers and arrangers, uh, to make gigs with local rock and funk and pop bands and, and, and be a better player that way. So there's that. There's also the appreciation of creativity in the arts that anybody that gets this kind of degree gets. So everybody comes from a different place, right? And as I was, I just gave a masterclass with our jazz program the other day. And, and I think just the same way you wanna find your own sound and your own concept as a player and become a stylist, the question is also, what do you have to offer? And there are various ways that you can contribute. You can be an agent and create work for, for artists and connect them up with clubs and jazz festivals. You can start a label the way Brian Camillo did with Artist Share. Um, he started off as focused on being a jazz guitar player, right? Um, I started off being focused on being a jazz saxophonist. I, I was not prioritizing the piece of paper when I was going to college in the 80s. Um, you know, and then later over time, I'm like, okay, I'm, I've got two kids, they're gonna go to college, I've gotta deal with this. How do you get benefits and all the rest of it? So I think you start with your love and your passion and, and then over time, uh, you know, you can't be unaware of the, uh, you know, the practical realities. But I think if you walk into a thing and you're like, okay, I'm 17, I just arrived here, how am I gonna make money? With this, with this direction, yeah, I mean, as Phil Wood says, you know, if you can be a brain surgeon or an alto player, maybe go with brain surgery, you know, but you do this primarily because you have to do it, right? Um, I remember my mother's favorite movie was The Red Shoes, you know, and, and this, this great uh, uh, director, the ballet Lermontov says to this, this uh, prospective student who winds up being the focus of the story, why do you do this? And she says, why do you breathe? You know, you do this because you have to do it. So if you're passionate about it, you will find a way. I, I've worked with wonderful players along the way over the last, oh, I don't know, 30 years or so in Japan, Israel, Brazil, New Zealand, South Korea, Australia, all over Canada, all over the States, um, all over Europe, that while they didn't necessarily go on to become jazz stars, they love the music, they play the music, they teach the music, they perform, they're working musicians, you know? So um, I, um, I, I, hear the, I hear your point, it's a valid point, you know? Um, but I do think that, in, I was, and I was talking about this the other day with a, with a student, you know, if you're a well-educated jazz musician, you can do anything. When, Sting's, when Sting uh, left, the police had started a band in the mid eighties. Who did he call? Branford Marsalis, Kenny Kirkland, Omar Hakim, who went to my sister high school, uh, music and art about maybe eight or 10 years before I went to performing arts and studied with Justin Achocha, who I know. I mean, you know, this is who you call um, because these are musicians that could, you know, Branford Marsalis can play the Iberic Concertino de Camera on the, on the alto, which is one of the most famous classical pieces for saxophone. Uh, and make a really historically important recording on that as his brother Winton can do on the trumpet. 
Um, they can write for orchestra, you know, uh, Branford can play in a rock band. So when you're a jazz musician, if you're really, um, if you're really dealing with it on, on a high level, you, your ultimate goal is to become, as Duke Ellington described, a musician beyond boundary or beyond category. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it's not necessarily like, some artists, I guess, and, and in talking to them, their own experience flavors that conversation, right? Like that they didn't necessarily have to pursue a formal education, but got the informal education and, and you know, put in, put in the work on the road. Um, I was just curious, because especially, you know, you, you became a jazz educator that like you're sitting there talking to these people and, you know, are you gleaning things that you can then use as a, as a teacher? Like, you know, like, are you, are you a student in these conversations? Are you, you know, uh, is there like a recess of your brain that is like filing things away as like, this is, this is a nugget for like the classroom or, you know, how do, how do you approach that realm? I mean, cause everything I guess is ultimately a teachable moment, right? Like that's. Yeah. I, I think I say in the intro that I, what I feel like mostly in those interviews and in those stories is just a fan, you know, with Eddie Burt telling me about his friend, Davey Schultergrap turning down Dizzy in the fifties because he felt he wasn't a good enough saxophone player yet to, to play with Dizzy Gillespie and Dizzy saying, come on, man, I wouldn't call you if I didn't think you were good enough. You know, like there, like I'm, I'm just, a, if you're a fan of the music, the history is important. And um, when I was sitting on a jazz cruise in 1991, playing a week with Maria Schneider and John Fetchock's band, and I'm lending my horn to Jackie McLean and I sit with him and, his wife Dolly and Milton Mona Hinton and Ben and Inez Riley, me and my girlfriend were just, we were just fans. We were just sitting there listening to these stories, you know, and even with my friends, people that I grew up with like uh, Kevin Hayes and Bill Charlap and, or uh, Mark Turner, who I got to know later on in my twenties. And, you know, I mean, I, I know these people as people and we're friends, but uh, to, to greater or lesser degrees, you know, I mean, Bill's like my brother, but, um, but when it comes to the experiences and, and their formative stuff, to me, I'm just, it's like, I'm just fascinated by their story and their journey. And so, yes, I think to your, to the specifics of your question, there is a part of my brain that's kind of retaining this and thinking, oh, and that's part of my own learned, part of my own growth and learning. And that's also part of something that I hope to pass on to other students. Uh, yeah. And I mean, when you're sitting there with Milt Hinton and he's talking about how, you know, Al Capone saved his finger, like, yeah, <laughs> that, you, you can't not just enjoy that as a story. I have to imagine. Yeah, I mean, or, or that Jackie Gleason helped, you know, basically, you know, when he was struggling for the first time in his life at, at the age of 40 or 41 and Cab Calloway could no longer bring the, the band on the road anymore. And he sees this old buddy of his walking down the street and he doesn't, and, Gleason's in the process of becoming much more famous than he had been. He just thought of him as, as his buddy five, six, seven years ago. He used to buy a beer when he when he bombed, you know, at at, at these uh, comedy clubs. Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. That's all right, Jackie. Come on, we'll buy a beer. And he loved the musicians and musicians loved him. And he was just a guy that was kind of all heart and, and put his own reputation on the line to say, no, no, no. Mill Tinton is my friend. He's one of the great jazz musicians, great jazz bass players in the world. He's in the band, you know, and in a, you know, in a recording studio, a, a soundstage in the early 1950s, where there wasn't a black person in the entire building, you know, not a custodian, 
not uh, not security guard, nothing. And so that kind of history and the way that the music intersects with our evolution, uh, you know, uh, I think is very important. Mm -hmm. The the flow of the book, because I mean, these are not, it's not chronological. Uh, you know, this isn't like, these are the interviews I did in this sequencing. You, you've rearranged it. What what mindset did you apply to kind of sifting through things and, and putting them in this order? Mostly just feel. Um, I knew I wanted to start the book with the Jay McShann story because it was such a bizarre thing to be like, wow, I'm coming back from my first gig. I'm 20 years old. I thought I played so terrible at the first night they were going to send me home, but everybody was nice to me and I had a nice week. And I, I come from like, like real poverty. Um, and so, and I made a little bit of money and this is really cool. And maybe this is going to be my life now. And <laughs> I'm on a jumbo jet sitting on a, you know, on the tarmac, getting ready to pull away from the gate. And he threw will John Gordon make himself known? And like all the other musicians and me just look at each other. And we're like, are you kidding me? Like, I've never flown to Europe before. Like I've, I've never, like I'm the person that's getting kicked off this flight. <laughs> what are the chances of it? So like that in and of itself was funny. And then in the midst of this like stress and worry of like, how do, like they're telling me there's no flights and I can't, you know, it was just, it was kind of a crazy little moment that I laugh about in retrospect, but running into Jay McShann at that moment and what he prioritized telling me about, listen, you sound good, you know, you're a good young player, but now you got to find out what is it that I have to offer. So you're not just a guy that, you know, plays the instrument good. And I had never heard that term stylist before. So I knew that that had to be, I really wanted that to start the book, you know? Um, and then, you know, to have the first interview be with Eddie Locke because Eddie was so important. Uh, in my life, he was also very important to Mike Ladon and Bill Charlap and Sean Smith and a lot of other people that we knew in and around New York. And, and uh, you know, it just um, not necessarily in and of himself, the household name, but I mean, the people that he played with and the, you know, the stories from Coleman Hawkins of, of encouraging him to learn classical pieces on the piano and and Roy Eldridge's passion for playing and him bringing me on a gig with Roy uh, when I was 20 years old. Um, and, um, you know, and, and what he got from Joe Jones, you know, him and Oliver Jackson apprenticing. I mean, I just felt like, you know, Eddie to me was like family, you know, so I really felt that those lessons and, and it was it was a restatement and a reaffirmation of, of Jay McShann's Thing of you know finding your own thing and so I just felt from there that I just wanted to kind of bounce around and, and do some contrasts and you know the the Cab Calloway story and and I felt like Maria Schneider uh, she's pretty soon after that if not immediately after that so it I think what it indicates to the reader is that I'm going to try to deal with all of the music that I love which is all of it you know there are certain people that are you know, if it's after a certain era, they're not interested. If it's before a certain era, they're not interested. I love all of it. And I think really to be a complete jazz musician, uh, you want to be aware of and have uh, knowledge and, and, and fluency in, in all of the different dialects of the language and the history of the music. That's something that Scott Robinson does, incre you know, just on a genius level on like 70 instruments. It's kind of insane.
And um, so it was really just feel, you know, of what feels like, um, what feels right now to create some kind of a contrast and, you know, start kind of early, but I went even back further than 87. I think I had stories as early as maybe 85. The, the notion of, you know, if something happened before a certain period, you're not interested. I think that's maybe the thing I was thinking about with Ken Popowski that you guys talk about, you know, jazz students not necessarily knowing stuff from like pre-1960 and that, you know, people kind of treat like, you know, the, the, the early periods of jazz as, as kind of like stayed or, you know, calcified. And I think maybe it's the, the the two of you, or maybe it's another discussion where you get into the notion that, you know, like those people had to invent that. Right. <laughs> right. Like that, like the, the notes that you're, you're thinking are like etched in stone didn't exist until these people, you know, put breath through horn. Absolutely. And that's very well put Michael, because yeah, it's, um, like Poplowski says something like that. Of course you hear it, dummy, because those people created it. I think that it was something like that. Yeah, but, but you know, you have to, it's, it's like hearing Mozart or, or, or Bach. It's like, oh, I've heard stuff that sounds like that. Really? Have you? Well, I mean, you know, I, I mean, if you, if, you, if you take that kind of thinking and you apply it to classical music, what, you're not going to listen to Bach? I mean, Stravinsky, I remember there was a quote of Stravinsky's that uh, my teacher in, at Manhattan School of Music, David Noon, said, he said, I can never stand to listen, music, listen to music better than my own, which is why I can never listen to Bach. I mean, you know, th th the level of genius there is, is such. And I mean, you look at Louis Armstrong, you look at things that Duke Ellington did, you look at, you know, just from a saxophonistic standpoint, I mean, you look at, at Coleman Hawkins and Benny Carter and Johnny Hodges, and then we're Lester Young went and, and, and uh, Charlie Parker and, and just the, 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 the growth of these concepts on these instruments of how to play them and, and uh, you know, how Roy Eldridge came out of Louis Armstrong and led to Dizzy Gillespie and, and all of that. It's, um, it's fascinating, but you do have to have, I think it involves a kind of humility that, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I think if you listen to like when I was a kid, I heard old scratchy records and I didn't get because I was a kid. And then I, I, I looked at some things on paper and I was like, oh, wow, that looks oh, that's amazing. And then I heard the old scratchy record of it. and I was like, oh, you know, I put it together. But sometimes, you know, when you're young, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And so, um, yeah, I mean, you go back and listen to some early Johnny Hodges as an alto player, and you try to play that. And then listen to late Johnny Hodges, and you try to play that. I mean, there's nobody else could, that could do that the way he did it. And um, yeah, I think you have to put yourself, you have to try to place yourself in the context of that time to have some full appreciation for the significance of it and, uh, and to help you place what you're trying to do in some kind of proper context. I think that lesson is something that this book goes some way to addressing because it seems to be uh, like a reiterative note, not just Ken saying that the, the, the other other artists you talk to, you know, really appreciate or try to build upon, you know, even if it's a rejection of what came before, it's at least an understanding of what came before that it's like, I'm going to do something different, but I know that it's different because this was already done by someone and acknowledging that. Mm -hmm. Um. When it comes to your own students, then like, you know, do you challenge them with their listening? Like, do you try to, you know, 
make sure that they don't, you know, corral themselves or, you know, go down a a bit of a cul-de-sac in some sense? Well, I think when you're dealing with high school and college age people, my focus is getting them functional. Do you know scales? Do you know how to apply those scales over harmony? Because as an improviser, you don't really have a chance at creativity until you have those basic things. And if they have a particular direction or passion, I don't try to dissuade them from that. I I try to encourage them in that and maybe along the line nudge them a certain direction. I remember when I was at Manhattan School of Music, when they started the jazz program, I had done a year, took a semester off, did another semester uh, as an undergrad before they started their jazz program. And then they started their jazz program. I was 19. I was studying with Bob Mincer, and he told me about this great tenor player named Harry Allen. He said, man, I've got this student out in Jersey and he's totally coming out of like the tradition and and Ben Webster and Prez and he loves that. And I was going to turn him on to train and all that. And I was like, and I thought, just let him be, let him do what he, what he loves, you know? And Harry Allen is, I love the way Harry Allen plays. And, and that's, you know, that's what he's coming out of. He sounds like himself, but you hear the tradition and what he does. Now, do you, when you're coming up as a student and as a teacher with a student, do you need to make sure that they're aware of the other things? For sure. But, you know, if I have a student, like I had a student a few years ago that was really into Eddie Lockjaw Davis, I'm like, great. First of all, that sounds like tradition. He's a, he's a certain kind of era and he's playing swing and blues and everything. But if you really look at what he's doing, he's actually playing any of the 12 notes at any time. You know, which if you put that in, a, if you explain that in a, in a classical theory course, well, that's sort of almost 12 tone theory. And is he using a tone row? Well, not exactly, but he's just the way he's approaching and, and resolving the following notes works for the following reasons. Um, and he happened to have been Jan Garbrecht's favorite saxophone player and Eddie Chambly. And Eddie Chambly was a straight ahead swing and blues tenor player that I had a long time association with who was married to Donna Washington. And Jan Garbrecht was a, is a very important contributor from Europe that's associated with the ECM scene yep. Yep. and has a very different kind of sound and concept. Um, and very personal, you know, absolutely a stylist, John Garbrecht for sure. Uh, most, most well known for his own records on ECM and his association with Keith Jarrett. Um, he told me, I said, man, where do you come up? How do you find your stuff? And he said, well, every morning I get up, I listen to Johnny Hodges and Ben Webster. And my all-time favorite saxophonist is Eddie Lockjaw Davis. <laughs> so I, I just love that because you can hear both the tradition and the stretching in what a, a musician like that does. And um, now you don't have to necessarily hear the whole history of, you know, of, of any music and something that someone does. But, uh, um, you know, to me, I think to be the best musician you can be, you want to have that history in that context. And I think that just really made my appreciation and respect and admiration for Jan Garbrick go up um, when he told me that that's, you know, that he went to the tradition along with the other things, you know, that he was utilizing to find his own, his own direction. Well, Jan's in the book, along with many more. The book is Jazz Dialogues. It's out through Symbol Press. Uh, John, thanks very much for taking some time to talk about the book. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
Sunday afternoons Christmas films in July with you The canon of Baltimore tales Our crafty looks when there's nothing to wear Maybe it's the blessing of my thirties I'm spending less time worrying and more time We count in the love More time we count in the love
shade of our ancestors, I am your American Negro.
matter the pejorative of choice, we are black. Unlike the tar they used on their faces to reinforce a stereotype, their stereos don't like. And I say this because I am of sound mind, and the sounds that reverberate in my mind are never confused by the volume of misinformation programming the minds of America. Black people, listen to your own music, as soul is the connection to our ancestors. A language of tonal tensions, teaching an audience it was never intended.